Well, I'm glad you're here this morning to celebrate Christmas. It is a very special time. And our text uh, this morning is a very special text. To tell you the truth, I've never preached on it, on the Annunciation. And uh, we're going to look at it this morning to see what we can learn uh, from it and from Mary and her response to what the angel says to her. So our reading of Scripture today is from Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 26. This is the Word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And then down in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, and behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Let us respond to the reading of God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I've often thought that the two hardest sermons to preach in the whole calendar year are Christmas and Easter. Not because they're not exciting and not because they're not important. They're probably the most important message we have. The incarnation, God coming to us in the flesh, and then, of course, Christ himself dying and taking our penalty uh, and taking our place uh, so that we could be reconciled with God. That's the gospel right there. God comes, God dies, God saves us. So why are they difficult? Well, because we've heard them a lot, haven't we? How many times have we heard Luke chapter 1 read? And when something happens time and time again in your life, you come up, become a bit numb to it. And it's not our fault. It's just the fact that that's what happens when you hear things time and time again. But I'm hoping that we can capture a little of the uh, drama of the excitement of the wonder of the incarnation through what happened in Mary's life uh, through the text that we're looking at right here this morning. 
Um, I suspect that uh, that day, Mary got up and it was a rather regular old day, just a routine day. In some ways, even like this day for us. Now, we knew we were coming to church. We knew we were going to celebrate Christmas. But all of us, I think, or most of us at least, believe that Christ is coming again. And some of you might even think it might be soon. You look around and, and you think things look like this could be the time for Christ to come again. You might even think he could come today, and it wouldn't surprise me. I've heard words like that coming out of people's mouths lately. But if he had come this morning, before you got here, you'd have been surprised. I don't care. (laughs) You still got up and probably ate the same breakfast, brushed your teeth the same way, put on the same clothes, and you're probably sitting in the same pew right now that you usually sit in. We're rather routine people. Mary got up and it was a routine day. She did not expect what happened to her, and it had to rock her life. And that's what we'll see as we look. We're going to look at four of her responses. First of all, we're going to look at the fear and the confusion uh, when she hears this message from the angel. Secondly, we're going to look and see at the doubts that she has concerning it all. Thirdly, the beautiful surrender, and finally, the joy that is hers and ought to be ours as well. Four responses. So in verse 28, we're told that the angel greets her, and he calls her, oh, favored one. And uh, verse 29 says that she was troubled, and she wondered, what kind of a greeting is this? Now, I don't know how many angel greetings there are, and uh, but... Uh, I suspect if an angel comes and gets in your face, uh, it's going to rock you back a bit. Uh, angels are not like the things that we see on our knick-knack shelf, you know, those precious moment people. They're cute, and if you have a collection of those, please forgive me. Uh, but angels don't look like that. Uh, they don't even look like a couple angels we have up on top of our bookshelf, they're also uh, quite interesting. Uh, When the Bible talks about angels, it talks about uh, people with swords in their hands and uh, people that when they are, when people are confronted by them, they they are in a state of fear. And that's really what we see with um, Mary as well. An angel says to her, you are the favored one of God. Now, sometimes you can read that and believe God must have looked down at all of the people on the earth and said, who is the best woman on the planet? She is favored. She's a favored one. And I'm going to come down and send my angel to speak to her. That's not the case. Whenever the Bible talks about anybody being favored, It's because God has come down to them and God has put his grace on them. It's not because they've earned anything or because they're special. It's because God made them special. There's another place in the Bible where we see exactly the same thing. And that's in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. There God says uh, concerning the people on earth, they are so sinful, they're so bad, I'm going to blot them out. I'm going to send a great flood. 
But then it says, but Noah found favor with God. And again, sometimes we read that and we think, there must have been one good person left on the earth. The rest of them were uh, fallen and, and not worth anything. Uh, they were a great disappointment to God, and God had to eliminate them. Uh, but he looked down and found one worthy person. No, no. God, for reasons we don't know, chose one person, and he put his grace on that person. That person was favored because God made him special. He wasn't special because he made a boat, a big boat at that. He was special because God blessed him. It's the same with Mary. She is blessed by God. She is the favored one because God has chosen her and God has put, her, put um, uh, his uh, grace on her. And the angel says to her, fear not. And uh, you need to put yourself in Mary's place at that moment. Uh, anybody being confronted by an angel would need to hear those words. Tomorrow, uh, next week we're going to look at the angel's song and remember what the angel said there before they sang their song, Peace on earth, goodwill to men. Fear not. And we see the same thing with Mary. But put yourself in Mary's place. This is a traditional uh, culture. The words that Mary heard from the angel that day would have said to her, your life is over. It is finished. Joseph is going to put you out. You're going to be a single mother. You and your uh, son are going to live in poverty the rest of your life. Look at you, you have nothing, you're a teenager, and your life is going to be crushed. What that says to me is this. Whenever God calls us, there is a cost. Now, the benefit is great. We have salvation, we have eternal life, we have a personal relationship with God, we've been adopted, all of that, of course. But there's still a cost. And whenever God comes to us, We've got to examine the cost. We've got to be willing to pay the cost. You know, because I've given you this illustration before, but three of my heroes are David Brainerd and uh, Henry Martin and Jim Elliott. And uh, those men have had a greater impact on Christendom in our time than any other three people combined. More people have come to faith and more people have gone to the mission field because of the life of those three men than any other three men in our lifetime. And here's the thing. One died at the age of 31. One died at the age of 21. And the other died at the age of 28. And the only thing they left behind was their diary. The diary which spoke of a very intimate relationship with God. And that is the impact they've had. But the thing you get when you read their diaries is this. They never really counted the cost. They heard a call from God and they responded and they were willing, whatever it would cost them, to follow what God had called them to do. The five men that went, or the four men, along with Jim Elliott, went into the jungles of Ecuador and were killed by those uh, Indians, the Aka Indians, or Waldani Indians, uh, they had guns. The Indians only had wooden spears. How in the world could they be killed? 
It was very simple. They had taken the guns to protect themselves from animals that might come out of the jungle, but they had said before they left, we would never use the guns on the Indians. Why? Because the Indians don't know Jesus. They're not ready for heaven. We know Jesus. We're ready for heaven. They paid the cost. They paid the cost. I don't know if you read this week that there was a man from Mississippi named Michael Cassidy. He went up to the capital of Iowa and he chopped off the head of a, a Satan uh, um, statue that was there in the, um, um, in, in the um, um, state house. Um, I don't know how you feel about that. Uh, I'm kind of glad he did it. I probably shouldn't say that. But he had to pay the cost. Immediately after he did it, he went and he turned himself in. He knew he was going to have to pay some cost. If you're going to follow Jesus, I don't care what it is, you're going to have to be willing to pay the cost. That was what Mary had to think about. Was she willing to pay the cost? At the moment in which she receives this message from the angel, the cost looks enormous. Secondly, we see the doubts here. Um, in, in verse 34, um, Mary says, um, how is this possible? How is this possible? How will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, I particularly like this response because if you know anything about the history of Christendom for the last 90 years, you know that we've had the battle against unbelief within the church and much of that unbelief has centered around the virgin birth. People that just could not believe in the miracle of the virgin birth. Uh, C.S. Lewis said the virgin birth is the, greatest, is the second greatest miracle ever performed, the incarnation. The most important and the greatest is the resurrection. I think the reason why unbelief is focused so much on the virgin birth and not on the resurrection is because with the resurrection, you know, you can pass it off if you want, saying things like, well, he really wasn't dead. He revived in the tomb, in the coolness of the tomb. His uh, followers came and stole the body. They have all kinds of ways to get around the resurrection. Now, <laughs> you can't get around a virgin birth. It's either a virgin birth or it's not a virgin birth. And what I like about this is that Mary expresses some doubts about this. One of the reasons that we can believe in the authenticity of the virgin birth is because the one who experienced the virgin birth was not just a simple believer. She said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I'm a virgin. How can this happen? She was a skeptic herself. But... She responded. She experienced it. And uh, we can see this in our own lives when we um, are dealing with, um, with doubts. Um, one of the assurances we have is Mary's own testimony. She was there. It happened to her. And all doubts really are, when you think about it, and we all have doubts, but they're serpent theology. They start way back in the Garden of Eden. Did God say such and such? Well, you can't believe that. Let me tell you what it really means. 
Um, and when I'm dealing with doubts, I deal with them in some way just like Mary did. Um, I go to Jesus. There are lots of things I can't answer. There are a lot of questions I can't fully understand and put my mind around. But I look at Jesus and I, and I say, can I trust him? Can I believe him? Is he, who really, is he really who he said he was? And I can say I know him personally. He is who he says he is. And then I look at the Bible and I see how the Bible prophesies concerning him in such a, a dramatic way. Uh, it's, it seems to me almost miraculous itself. In Isaiah 53, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And I look at that and how perfectly that prophesies exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can say, yes, he is the one that was promised. And I can put my trust in him. Literally, I can do exactly what Mary did as she believes. So we see how, first of all, the confusion and the fear and then dealing with the doubts, how could this happen? And then we see this wonderful response of Mary, uh, this, what I would call a response of surrender. In verse 38, And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the Bible says the angel then departed. That's really always what faith looks like. Faith is always one of surrendering our will to God's will, of believing what God says, not what others say, or even sometimes what we think. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved, through faith. And the faith is not of yourself. Not even the faith is of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Mary doesn't know how this is going to work out. At this point, again, she has no assurance other than the angel uh, that has uh, come and confronted her. And she says to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. The word actually is dule, the same word that is used all through the Bible for the lowest category of slave possible. Um, One that owns nothing one that belongs entirely to another person. Sometimes it's even translated bond servant. And the way to Christ is always through the door of surrender. Now, that's not popular. It's never been, and it's probably less popular in our day. Today, we're told we need to assert ourselves. We need the best person we can be. Uh, We need to use our gifts. We need to work harder. We need to make a name for ourselves. The question we ought to be asking ourselves is, why are we here? Why did God make us? Why did he create us? And he made us for himself. 
The promise of the good life is always acknowledged in dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. Always we need to respond like Mary. And reject that serpent theology and embrace spirit theology. It's asking God to take control of our lives. It's resting in the fact that no matter where we are in life, God is working and letting God's will flow out of our life in all that we do. You see, the hardest thing in faith, and I want you to hear this, the hardest thing in faith is not believing. It's surrendering. Surrendering to God. In, in um, basic Christianity um, by John Stott, he has a, a place there where he says, you know, I've talked to a lot of people, especially in colleges, and they always say they have problems believing because, you know, look at what science has shown us today and look at all these questions that we have and, 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 and what about the Bible? And, and they bring up all of these questions that they claim make it difficult for them to believe. But he said, when I dig a little deeper, almost always their problem is not believing but surrendering their life to God. They don't want to give up living the way they're living. They don't want God to tell them what, telling them what to do. They want to be in control of their own life. And we look at this response from Mary. What a beautiful one. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Let that be our prayer as well this Christmas. That uh, we would give ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ in even a deeper way. Now finally, I said there's joy. And we have to go down into the uh, chapter just a little bit. I've skipped a visit with Elizabeth, um, her aunt. Um, but that's an exciting time as well in her life. And there we see what's called the Magnificat, the Song of Mary. And you hear those words, My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices. The spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For, for behold, from him now all generations will call me blessed. She sees her poverty. And I don't think it's the poverty that she is just a peasant girl, teenager at that, and she's going to marry just a carpenter. I think what she understands is, without God, I have nothing. Without God, I have no claim on life. He gives me everything. He gave me life in the first place. And now, through the son that I'm going to bear, I will receive eternal life. Back in the visit with Mary, with Elizabeth, uh, her aunt says to her, blessed are you. Um, and she begins to understand what the blessing really is. You see, what she began to realize was that this really is the Messiah. That one that generation after generation after generation in the Old Testament had been waiting for. This is the one who was going to come, and now he's come. And he's different than we thought. He's not just going to be a great man. He is going to be God himself, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. You see, once we grasp the gospel, we always have joy. 
Remember when we were preaching through Philippians recently in chapter 4, verse 4, we have there, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. He repeats it twice because he's really excited about the joy that he has. I hope this Christmas, as you look around the world and look around the stuff that's happening, that you have great confidence in what God is doing and that confidence and that joy that your Savior has come and he has put his saving grace on your life. You have become a child of God. I hope that just lifts you up and lifts you even above all the news and all the stuff that's happening. Listen, it was a dark world when Jesus came the first time. And it's a dark world now. We're waiting for him for his second coming. But there are lots of things to be concerned about. I, I saw one of those or heard one of those radio pieces just recently on what are called DINKS, D-I-N-K-S. Uh, that's dual income, no kids. And uh, uh, that is a fast-growing um, demographic in our country, a very fast-growing demographic. That's why they were featuring it. And they, they interviewed some of these people, and there were two reasons why they weren't having children. One was obvious, because they have a lot more money, they can have bigger vacations, bigger homes, nicer cars, all of that. You know, kids, they cost money. But the second one was even sadder than the first one. The second one was, I wouldn't want to bring up children in this world. Now, the world's always had problems, but we have Christ. He did come. That's what we've been hearing right here in the story of Mary, and because Christ has come, the gospel has saturated our life, and it changes everything. We don't have to live in fear. We can live in joy, just like Mary. Like I say, the world was no better in her time than it is now. But Christ has come. He has broken the back of sin. He has adopted us, and Christ has given us a future that is eternal, a perfect future, eternal life with him. C.S. Lewis, who, by the way, had an autobiography uh, conversion uh, book entitled Surprised by Joy. That's what he calls his testimony of faith, Surprised by Joy. And that's what we're talking about right now. But he wrote this. If you want to get warm, you must get close to the fire. If you want to get wet, you've got to jump into the water. If you want joy and peace, you are going to have to get close to the one and the only one who brought joy and peace into this world that first Christmas. And it's still true. It's still true. Mary experienced it. She testified to it. We experience it. And we can testify to it as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, as we just celebrate this enormous good news. That's what it's called, the good news gospel. What is that good news? And when Jesus came in this world, everything changed. By his life, death, and resurrection, we can have a beautiful, perfect relationship with you. We can live with joy and hope. And we can testify to that in a world that needs to hear it. Father, 
Help us to really experience Christmas this year. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.